All right, good morning, brothers and sisters. Great to see you all. That was a great time, excellent time of worship this morning. Thank you, worship band. Uh, always wonderful to, uh, to get our worship on before we hear the words, so uh, great stuff. Uh, this morning we're going to be continuing our study uh, in the book of Romans in a message that I'm calling God's Authority to Keep Us, Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 34. Uh, for those of you watching on Facebook, I welcome you. Glad you're with us as well. And uh, again, I would ask you, if you feel so inclined, it would be nice if you would share the message as we try to increase our, our reach uh, to people uh, who we will never meet. But uh, we don't know your friends. But hopefully, uh, through sharing of our message, uh, people might know the Lord through the work that we do here. So I pray that you'll do that. Uh, and before we get into the message, let's ask the Lord for help. Uh, Lord God, we just thank you uh, for your incredible word, and uh, Lord, all the truths we've been studying, uh, not only in Romans, but over the past uh, few months in Romans chapter 8, Lord, uh, it's just incredible the things that you have done, Lord, and uh, we'll find that Paul is just as astounded as we are, as we learn today. So Lord, help us to understand uh, this idea of eternal security and the assurance of our salvation, Lord, and uh, not only to understand it, but to live like we believe it, Lord. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, the game show Jeopardy! has been on TV since 1964, and it's been hosted continuously in syndication by Alex Trebek since 1984, so 36 years he's been doing this. It's a pretty good run. Uh, the format of the show is simple enough, right? It's a, it's a quiz show, a quiz competition in which three contestants are presented with clues in the form of answers, and the contestant who buzzes in first has to answer in the form of a question. Now, Ken Jennings, who you may have heard of, a very famous Jeopardy! contestant, he set the record. He won 74 consecutive episodes of Jeopardy!, uh, taking home with him $2.5 million uh, in the process. Now, uh, if you've ever looked at Jeopardy's website to, to see the rigorous process that you have to go through just to get on the show, uh, and then the idea that you might actually win a show, and then that you might actually win 74 shows in a row, uh, the amount of knowledge and trivia that he has is astounding. Now, the popularity of the show is based on people's fascination. Right? trivia, and we love to play along, right? You hear a question, and you yell out the answer in the background, and then when you're wrong, you're like, oh, <laughs> wrong answer. Uh, but sometimes you're right, and that's fun. Uh, so the ability to play along with the contestants is fun, and then the answer question format is the thing that really uh, is fun. I read something uh, about Jeopardy! this week. Uh, Merv Griffin, who created the show, was thinking about how uh, he needed an idea for a game show, and he was flying from I don't know, Duluth to New York or something like that. And his wife actually came up with the idea. She said, there has not been a quiz show since the quiz show scandal some years back. Why don't you do a quiz show and reverse the form? Give them uh, the answer and make them guess the question. And Merv Griffin initially and immediately pitched that to NBC, and it became an incredible success since 1964. So I bring all this up because uh, what we have done now is we've reached the part, uh, this final passage in Romans, verses 839, uh, where Paul asked this series of rapid-fire questions uh, at his audience uh, but these questions are, are rhetorical questions, right? They're, they're questions where the answer is so obvious that they, they almost don't even uh, uh, merit an answer because, you know, unlike Jeopardy questions where, you know, we would never know the answer unless we had some smart guy like Ken Jennings to help us out, uh, these questions are, are really very simple to answer. But just so 
Uh, we can understand these verses today. I want to be sure that we actually spell out the answers to the questions. Uh, and so uh, we're going to play a little Jeopardy today. Uh, so in our passage today, we're going to look at four questions that Paul asked uh, in verses 31 through 34. And then we'll give the answer to the question first, and then we'll pose the question uh, from the verses. But before we do that, let's just take a minute to think about Paul. Uh, and his writing of the book of Romans and his mindset as he's doing so. Now, the last two sermons that we've done uh, where we've been talking about uh, election, we've been talking about foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, uh, and glorification. It's pretty heady stuff, very complicated uh, uh, theological ideas, and the sermons have been challenging uh, because we've been looking at all these hard doctrines that are hard for our human minds to, to get ourselves wrapped around but now verses 31 to 39, they mark a transition and, and a conclusion to all these truths that have been uh, written by Paul so far. So uh, in your Bibles, if you look down at your Bible, you will see uh, that there is a new paragraph right after verse 30. And there's a couple letters probably of indentation as the new paragraph starts. Uh, but imagine being Paul. Uh, Paul is writing the book of Romans, right? And he'd just written verses 29 and 30. And after that, he doesn't have verse 31 yet. He's got a blank scroll. And he's sitting there just uh, amazed. Imagine him be being amazed by these staggering truths uh, that God has revealed to him, these incredible, unchanging, eternal truths. And I just imagine him sitting there uh, in a dark, candlelit room uh, with his quill in his hand and his inkwell in front of him and this blank scroll uh, before him and just wondering uh, what God is going to reveal to him next after these incredible truths. And, and his next words show that uh, these truths that have been laid out uh, have left him nearly speechless. Uh, what shall we say to these things? Uh, Paul was filled with wonder about what he had written already. And so these things, uh, he could have been referring all the way back to, to the very first verse in chapter, Roman, uh, chapter 1 of Romans, or maybe he was just referring to verses 29 and 30. Uh, we really don't know, but, but no matter what he was referring to, even if it was just verses 29 and 30, uh, these truths are amazing, incredible truths. And so whatever Paul was referring to, uh, they were clearly spectacular, mind-blowing things to Paul. And so what the, what the Holy Spirit gave Paul next uh, was this series of questions that absolutely locked down the doctrines of eternal security and assurance of salvation. When I say eternal security, I mean the idea that God holds us secure and there's nothing we can do to lose that salvation. When I say assurance of salvation, that's our attitude toward the doctrine of eternal security. We are eternally secured. Now, have we accepted that? Do we believe that we are assured of our salvation? So one looks at it from God's perspective, the other from our perspective. Um, but in these verses, <clears throat> Paul contemplated Every conceivable option, uh, every conceivable obstacle between God's eternal love and us. And in verses 31 to 34, uh, he's talking about God's authority to save us and keep us. Uh, and he's talking in verses 35 and 36 about physical dangers and how those cannot possibly stand in the way of our salvation. And then in verses 38 and 39, uh, forces of the universe cannot jeopardize our salvation. And after considering all of these potential obstacles, Paul concluded that none of these, not one of these things, can possibly uh, separate us from the unconquerable love of Christ. 
And so we'll look at Paul's first four questions today. So on to our game of Jeopardy. Now we're only going to have one category, unlike the six categories that we typically have uh, in a game of Jeopardy. Uh, I called our category assurance of salvation, but we could also call it eternal security. Uh, And so uh, here we go. Uh, Assurance of salvation for 100. Alex, here is our first question. That's not the first question. Now let me give the answer. Of course, I've got it backwards. I've already confused myself. That's the answer. Nothing and no one can stand against us. All right, now somebody in the audience is going to buzz in, and the question that they would ask in response to that is Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Yes, that's $100 to your account. Congratulations. Well, I'm sure you've read this verse many times. If God is for us, who is against us? But have you ever really thought about the idea that God is for us. Now, Paul wrote Romans from the city of Corinth, which uh, we know is one of the most pagan, one of the most idolatrous uh, cities in all of the ancient world at the time. So he's writing from Corinth, and he's writing to Rome. And if there's any city in the ancient world that could give Corinth a run for its money in terms of pagan idolatry, sexual immorality, uh, it would be Rome. And so they're two pagan cities, and, and pagan gods, they're not for anybody, right? Pagan gods are for themselves. They were arbitrary, they were capricious, they were self-centered, they required sacrifice, they needed to be appeased at all times, and their worshipers were constantly trying to figure out ways to please their pagan deities with various rituals so that the gods would allow rain for their crops and healing for their diseases, and a worshiper could only know if his god was satisfied by the results, right? If it rained, then their god was satisfied with the prayer. But otherwise, how would they ever know? So this concept of God actually being for us would be just absolutely foreign uh, to a pagan. Uh, Their gods only sought their own pleasure. A pagan could only hope that his god would interrupt his partying or whatever he was doing, uh, notice the prayer of the penitent, uh, somehow uh, be feeling magnanimous at that moment, uh, and give grace, uh, answer the prayer. Uh, But a pagan would never have understood a loving, personal God who could be for us. And you know, when you think about it, sadly, uh, a lot of religions that exist in the world today, now, 2,000 years later, still don't understand God being for us. Uh, Think about Islam. It's got the five pillars, right? Worshippers of Allah must profess faith, and they must pray, and they must fast, and they must give alms, and they must travel to Mecca, a pilgrimage, at least once in their lives. And even if they do all of these things uh, faithfully, they still, at the end of their lives, cannot be sure that Allah is satisfied with them. Hopefully their good deeds outweigh their bad. Hopefully they've checked all the boxes, but they never have assurance of faith. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that you must call on the name of Jehovah to be saved, but that you also must must do good deeds and good works to attain that salvation, and they never know if they've done enough good deeds to go to heaven. So salvation is up to Jehovah uh, to decide, but tragically, they deny Jesus, so all of their good works end up amounting to nothing. Mormons have no assurance of salvation either. They believe that they are resurrected by grace, but that they are are exalted to godhood. That's how they become gods themselves, by works, including faithfulness to church leaders, Mormon baptism, tithing, ordination, marriage, and secret temple rituals. And they strive to check all of those boxes uh, off their list, but they never know if they have done enough. 
and even some denominations of Christianity, very works-based. You have to continue to do this and do that, make sacraments to get back in God's good favor, whatever it is. Uh, we often don't understand that God is for us. In any works-based religion, God is not for you. God is for himself, and you approach him with uncertainty, fear, trepidation, even dread. Uh, you try to satisfy him, and then you hope. How depressing, uh, how tragic. Uh, and now, in comparison to that, in comparison to these uh, pagan deities, think about our God. He is the creator of the universe. He is omnipresent, omnipotent. Uh, he is all-knowing. He's perfectly holy. He's without sin. Everything that he does is just and right and perfect. And yet this majestic, all-powerful, eternal God wants to have a relationship with us. He has chosen to reveal himself to us in creation <clears throat> through scripture and through his son. He is for us. That is our God. He is infinitely powerful, yet intimately relational. And he is for us. He's concerned about us. He promises to bring about justice. He promises to work all things for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. And he sent his son to die for our sins so that we may have eternal life if we believe. So to say that God is for us is to say that he's on our side. Now, it's not just that he's rooting for us. It, it's more than that. Uh, like, we root for our favorite football team. Uh, I have been a fan of the Oakland slash Los Angeles slash Oakland slash now Las Vegas Raiders uh, <laughs> since I was a boy. Uh, and it's been since 1983 uh, since we've won a Super Bowl. Uh, I was a freshman in college at that time, a long, long time ago. Uh, and so if there was anything that I could do to influence the outcome more than root, I would do it because it's not going to happen, seemingly, uh, in my lifetime. I, I still hope and I pray, but uh, rooting is, is uh, it's not enough. When, when, uh, when we talk about God and his being for us, it's more than just rooting. Uh, God is, is rooting for us, yes, but it's more than rooting. He's actually active uh, to work things out so that uh, things go well for us. And, and that is a, such a reassuring uh, truth because we do have adversaries, don't we? Uh, Christians in America are constantly under the threat of persecution, ridicule, and increasingly even physical violence for our faith. Uh, missionaries across the world, of course, uh, have it much worse than we do. They're facing death uh, every day as they profess their faith and proclaim the gospel to a world that needs to hear it. And this unbelieving world is against Christians, and we find that Peter was right when he said, we are strangers and aliens in this world. Uh, and it should not be so a surprise to us because Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. And so the longer we live in this world, the less we feel at home in it. Uh, and we long for Jesus to return and we are eager to see him face to face. So the world is against us. Satan is also an adversary of ours. Uh, Jesus achieved his victory over Satan on the cross and by his resurrection. Now before the cross, uh, Satan tempted Jesus, uh, and he was doing anything he could to get Jesus off his mission. Uh, but after the cross, there was nothing left to, to be done. Jesus had his victory. Uh, Satan knows that Jesus has won, and Satan has read the book of Revelation, and he knows how it ends. 
and he's headed for the lake of fire. And he knows that, and we know that, uh, but he wants to take as many of us with him as he can. And so he prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. He appears as an angel of light to deceive us. He perverts truth to trick us. He, he uh, tempts us to sin so that we will stumble, and he, he distracts us with worries of the world so that we will be uh, separated from the Lord. And his hope is to destroy us so that we will live our lives uh, in fear and that will ruin our lives and damage our witness. But Satan can't snatch us out of God's hand because once we are his, he can never snatch us out of God's hands if we have trusted in Jesus as our Savior. And so none of Satan's schemes can separate us from the love of Christ because God is for us and against Satan. So the world is against us. Satan is against us. Even our own flesh is against us. Uh, We've been saved but our sin struggle is not over. Uh, Some of our sins are powerful enough to ruin our lives. Uh, For some, the struggle is uh, day-to-day dealing with alcohol, drugs, uh, infidelity, gambling, uh, anger, temper, pride, lust, and many other sins. And these things can cost us everything. They can cost us our marriages, our children, our jobs, our homes, our retirement accounts. They can cost us even our lives sometimes. Uh, But God is for us, even against our own flesh. And that's why uh, 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way also so that you can endure it. So that's true. We have this uh, Holy Spirit that God has given us to wage war against our flesh and the devil and the world because he is for us. And apart from that, we could never have victory on our own. So think about the question that we asked. If we only looked at the second half of the question, who is against us? Well, a lot of people are against us, right? Uh, People are against us. The world is against us. Satan is against us. Uh, But when we add the first part of the question, if God is for us, well, our adversaries melt away in comparison. They are so small compared to the power and strength of God uh, that they just become minuscule by by comparison because they are so small. Uh, And so these, these things, the world, the devil, the flesh, they're like the playground bully when your older brother shows up and the playground bully runs for his life because uh, they can't stand against the power of God. Uh, God has foreknown us, predestined us, called us, justified us, and glorified us. So who can possibly be against us compared to our all-powerful God? So we have victory over our enemies because God is for us and we can be assured of our salvation for all eternity. How do we know that God is for us? Let's get back to our game. Assurance of salvation for 200, Alex. Here's the answer. Having already been given or having already given us Jesus, God will freely give us everything else we need. If I called on a contestant out there, you'd read off Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So how do we know that God is for us? Well, first part of Romans 8.32, he did not spare his own son. We know that God is for us because he sent Jesus to earth to be born of a virgin as a helpless baby. 
And both God and Jesus knew what was going to happen to Jesus, right? They knew what was in store, obviously. They knew that Jesus' three years of ministry was going to be difficult. He would be opposed. He'd be mocked. He'd be ridiculed. The leaders would conspire against him. Even one of his own apostles would conspire against him, and they all would abandon him in his hour of need. And they both knew that the day was coming when Jesus would go to the cross and hang there and die for our sins. And on that day, on the day of Jesus' crucifixion, God demonstrated that he is for us because of a historical fact. Jesus took our punishment by going to the cross. God delivered him over for all of us. Now that Greek word, delivered him over, is the Greek word paradidomai, and it means to, to hand over. Uh, we see it used several times in the New Testament. Here's a couple of examples. Mark 10.33, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes. Uh, Matthew 27.26, Pilate released Barabbas, but after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. But do you realize that before Judas handed him over to the chief priests and scribes, and before Pilate handed him over to be crucified, God first handed Jesus over to these wicked men. In Acts chapter 4, it says, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. And they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So God proved his love for us by handing over his own son to evil men to torture, mock, and crucify. And while Jesus hung naked on the cross, God poured out his wrath, which, he, which we deserve, on his own son. So God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Uh, this word for in Romans 8.32 means on behalf of or in place of. So God sent Jesus to suffer for us, and that's how we know that God is for us. Jesus was suspended on the cross for six hours until he was dead, and then they pierced him in the side until blood and water flowed out just to make sure. He died a criminal's death, as shameful, humiliating, and painful as could possibly be. And this was predicted in Isaiah chapter 53. He was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has called the caused the iniquity of us to fall on him. So who gives his son for others except our loving God? Jesus' sacrifice was foreshadowed back in Genesis chapter 2. Remember the Abraham and Isaac story. It's hard to miss the parallels between Jesus' death and Isaac's near uh, sacrifice, Abraham's near sacrifice of Isaac. Uh, it was a three-day journey uh, from where Isaac and Abraham were to Mount Moriah where the sacrifice was going to happen. Uh, and all that time, uh, Abraham is thinking, I have three days I'm going to be separated from uh, my son forever. And then three days, you'll recall, Jesus was killed, and he was in that tomb for three days before God received him back. Now, of course, Abraham received Isaac back without Isaac having to die, and that's the big difference. God provided a ram to be sacrificed for Isaac, in Isaac's place. But Jesus had to die himself because there was no one else who could die for him. Only he is the perfect, sinless Lamb of God, 
who is qualified to be our substitute and our sacrifice. And so he had to die. No one could die in his place. And every one of us deserves uh, that punishment for the sins that we have committed. But God offered his son as a substitute so we would not bear that punishment, but rather that we have eternal life when we receive him as our savior. So how do we know that God is for us? Because he did not spare his son, but delivered him over for all of us. And since that is true, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Now, Paul's point is that God has already given us the ultimate gift in his son, Jesus Christ. And if he's given us the ultimate gift, he's not going to withhold something lesser from us after having already given us the greatest thing that he can give us. So if you buy your child an expensive toy or game, you're not going to withhold the batteries from him so he can play it, right? And if you buy an engagement ring for your fiance and you spend several thousand dollars on it, he's going to give you the little black box to put the ring in for free, right? He's not going to withhold the lesser thing, having already given the greatest thing. And so God's greatest gift is Jesus Christ on the cross, and that cost God everything to give that gift to us. And now that he's given us Jesus, he's not going to withhold anything that is so minuscule by comparison. So we can rest in the knowledge that if God gave us his son, he will give us salvation and he will protect our salvation too. We are eternally secure. That's what this golden chain of salvation means. And the assurance of salvation means that we own the fact that we are eternally secure so that we never forget uh, what God has done for us and that we will be in heaven with him someday. So he will freely give us all things. He already has in Christ Jesus. Okay, so the next two questions envision a, a courtroom setting where somebody might uh, stand up before God as judge and, and bring accusations against us. Uh, and uh, we depend on God's power and authority to defend us against those charges. So back to our game. Assurance of salvation for 300, Alex. Here's the answer. No one has the authority to bring a charge against God's elect. And so the question is, Romans 8.33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. So we understand that Satan does not have the authority to bring a charge against God's elect. God is sovereign. God has already declared us not guilty. So who can bring a charge against God's elect when God has already declared us not guilty? Well, we know that Satan accuses us. He accuses us personally all the time. He knows that we sin, and he tries to make us feel guilty about our sin. He tries to make us feel like we're not worthy of God's love, that God wants nothing to do with us because we're such awful sinners. And we need to recognize that those accusations do not come from God. Those accusations come from Satan. When you hear that in your ear, that's not God talking. He doesn't talk to us like that. That's Satan. But those charges won't stick. Because Jesus died for every sin we have ever committed or will commit. And when we mess up, when we sin, we repent, we ask, ask for forgiveness, and then we just get back on the horse. We keep walking the path that God has for us. And Satan would like us to believe that our sin makes us unworthy of the love of God. But God says no one can bring a charge against his elect. And Satan may accuse us, but God will throw those charges out of court so Satan does not have authority. The world does not have authority either. 
We have human enemies, right? They will gossip against us. They'll slander against us. They'll bear false witness against us. They'll mock us for our faith. Uh, But God is the one who justifies. He's the ultimate authority in the universe. And if God has declared us not guilty, then we are not guilty. Our justification is secure. Our sin is against God first. And so if he has chosen to forgive our sin, who else can make an accusation? No one is the answer. So, no one can bring a charge against us, but even if someone could bring a charge against us, uh, there is still something else. We have another advocate, Jesus Christ himself, who ensures that no one uh, can condemn us. So, back to our game. Assurance of salvation for 400, Alex. Answer, because of Jesus' work on the cross, and because God has chosen us, and because Jesus intercedes for us, there is no one who can condemn us. So the question, verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, uh, yes, rather who was raised, who who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So in uh, this last verse, we see four reasons here why no one can condemn God's elect. Uh, The first one, Jesus Christ is the one who died. And when we believed in Jesus Christ for our salvation, Well, that was the end of the story. God removed all of our guilt at that moment, and he placed all of the guilt on Jesus. And therefore, there is nothing for God to condemn us for because Jesus has already paid that price, and God has declared us not guilty. So Jesus is the one who died. That's the first reason. Second reason, not only did he die, but he rose from the dead. You can see that there in verse 834. God raised, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead to show that he was satisfied with Jesus' sacrifice and his payment for our sin. So God's anger uh, that was against us for our sin was poured out on Jesus, and Jesus, having satisfied God's wrath, the anger is gone. Jesus rose from the dead, and so we have nothing to fear anymore. God's wrath is satisfied. A third reason, Jesus is now at the right hand of God, and that is a position of ultimate authority, and from there, Jesus reigns. And Jesus promises that we will one day reign with him. So Jesus has this authority to keep us and protect us from this exalted position so that no one can condemn us. And Jesus protects us with all his authority. And the final reason that no one can condemn us is because Jesus also intercedes for us. And that's one of Jesus's ministries now. As he sits at the right hand of the Father, he intercedes on our behalf. Now, God has already declared us not guilty, but now Jesus is there advocating for his elect by claiming us as recipients of his grace by faith. So how can anyone condemn those who God foreknew, who he has predestined, called, justified, and glorified? How can anyone condemn such a person? And how can anyone condemn someone for whom Jesus died and rose again, and God was satisfied with that person's sin? And when Jesus has assumed his place at the right hand of the Father and advocates for us, what is there, who is there in the universe who can possibly bring a charge or advocate against us? Brothers and sisters, do we see how assured our salvation is? Because God has already chosen us, called us, justified us. Nobody can take that away from us. It's impossible for anyone to snatch us out of the Father's hands. So Paul wanted his readers to have absolute assurance in our eternal security. 
and we are untouchable by anything else in the entire universe. Now, what's the problem? There is no problem from God's side. The problem is from our side because we tend to doubt these things, right? And we look around, we look at the year 2020, for example, and we say, I'm not so sure about God's eternal salvation because what is going on in the world? Well, God says he works all things together for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. So if you look back at 2020 and you don't understand what's happening, like none of us do, well, we need to see things from an eternal perspective, from God's eyes, and we don't know what God is doing, but one day it will all be made clear to us, and we know uh, that all things will work together for good for us. So when we come across these issues of doubt, when we're not so sure about our salvation, uh, just a couple of uh, applicational thoughts. Uh, Don't let the enemy sow doubt. Remember that it is not God who is speaking in your ear. It is Satan who is speaking in your ear. He is attacking you. It's a satanic attack, a spiritual attack. Uh, When you are doing something for the Lord, uh, when you're stepping out in faith, if you're a new believer, Satan comes at you, and he does not like that you're a new believer, and this is when you are most vulnerable to spiritual attack. Whenever you step out and you're doing something great for God, uh, Satan knows about it, he's not happy about it, and you're going to find that you face the greatest spiritual attacks in those times. But God is crystal clear about the assurance of our salvation. Uh, Jesus purchased it on the cross, and God keeps us from losing it, but Satan doesn't want us to know that. He doesn't want us to feel secure. And if he can't have our soul for all eternity, he at least wants to try to rob us of our peace today. So what we've seen, though, is that since God foreknew us since before the creation of the world and we exist in this golden chain of salvation that we've been talking about, uh, nothing can jeopardize our future glorification. And so when Satan reminds us of our past, we remind him of his future. You're going to the lake of fire, Satan. Now, yes, I am a sinner, but Jesus has paid for that sin. Get behind me, Satan, and don't let uh, the enemy, Satan, sow doubt. And then along with that, trust in God's eternal plan for your salvation. Think about it. What else could God possibly do to make us feel more confident in our eternal salvation than what he's already done. He foreknew us since the foundation of the world, predestined us, called us, justified us, and glorified us. And not only that, Jesus died on the cross to purchase our salvation. And that glorification is so confidently stated that it's in the past tense. What more could God possibly do than what he's already done? And so the cost to God was infinite. Now, when you think about what it cost God to purchase our salvation, uh, we can't put a price tag on God sending his son to die for our sins. Now, for you and I, if we drop a penny on the ground, uh, we may not even bother to stop and pick it up, right? It's not even worth the effort to pick up the penny in our creaky old bones, right? We'll just leave it there for somebody else. Uh, but if you drop 100 bucks, you're going to manage to get down and get that 100 bucks, right? You're going you're gonna to figure out a way to pick that up. And we're worth so much more to God than $100. So he's not going to let us slip through his fingers after paying such a high price for us. Now, Jeopardy, the game show, is fun because we we learn a lot of useless trivia, facts that we never knew before. But in our game of trivia, our Jeopardy today, we're not talking about useless trivia. We're talking about foundational truths about how we live our lives uh, with joy and happiness, uh, even though we suffer uh, because our salvation is eternally secure. Uh, We can never have true joy and security if we are not sure what's going to happen to us when we die. We'll always be worried. We'll always live in fear. 
but the Bible tells us that we can be sure. And our eternal security, from God's perspective, is an absolute fact. The question is, will we believe in it so that we will have this assurance of our salvation? Uh, eternal security is true whether we believe it or not, but the joy is found in our belief in it. So don't doubt that God is able to keep you. God has the power and authority to bring you safely home to heaven, and he will. Let's pray, brothers and sisters. Lord God, we thank you so much uh, for these concluding verses to chapter 8 in the book of Romans. Lord, such foundational truths to the hope that we have. If we're going to have this hope that is uh, written about by Paul in Romans 5, we have to have this assurance of our salvation. We have to believe that our salvation is eternally secure because of what you have done for us since the foundation of the world and what Jesus has done for us on the cross, Lord. Lord, help us to understand these truths. Help us to live them so that we might live joyous lives and that we might be attractive to other unbelievers, Lord, who need to hear the word. And, and I pray that they'll see it in us, Lord, and ask what is different about you and that we might have a chance to witness to them through the amazing gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in his name. Amen.